Would you turn with me, please, to the 22nd chapter of Genesis, Genesis 22. It may uh, surprise you some to have you turn to an Old Testament passage for an Easter message. I uh, love to surprise people by uh, teaching from the Old Testament. I think they uh, listen better when they're sufficiently surprised. But uh, one of the reasons I like to do so is because I want to help you gain a greater appreciation for this uh, older part of our Bible and uh, realize that this is Scripture as much as the New Testament is Scripture. The, uh, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians tells us that uh, Jesus was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. The only Scripture that Paul had at that time was the Old Testament. So we, we must be able to find the resurrection embedded somewhere in, in the Old Testament. It's there in ways often uh, cloaked to our eyes as Westerners. It's there in form and symbol and type and metaphor, strange uh, symbols that we're not, uh, we're not familiar with. But nevertheless, it's, it's there. Some of you may have read Bill Edlin's column yesterday in which he stated that uh, Psalm 23 is rooted in, in the Egyptian Osiris myth. Now, uh, I do disagree with Bill about the uh, origin of the 23rd Psalm. I think that all of these myths in the ancient world, the Gilgamesh story, the Osiris uh, myth, the story of dying and rising gods, are all myths based, based on people's fears and hopes. No one wants to die. And most of these myths are, are reflections of that hope that there, there must be something more. We know that there must be something more. Uh, as Alexander Pope puts it, we're not intended to be, uh, to be plants, uh, to be rooted and, and, uh, as plants to, to grow and propagate and to rot. There, there must be something more. And I think that's what these myths are. They're, they're expressions of this hope that there's something else. But the resurrection of our Lord is the reality. And Psalm 23 is the reality. As, as, our, as our Christmas uh, carol puts it, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. But I do agree with Bill that, that the, the symbol of green pastures may very well refer to heaven because that's the sort of thing that you find in the Old Testament. Not straightforward statements of, of, of the resurrection, but the idea of walking in, uh, in green pastures or Elysian fields, those are the, the symbolic ways that the Old Testament talks about, about heaven. And then the New Testament, or the Old Testament, also talks about, uh, about the resurrection in type. That is, there are stories, actual historical happenings, that prefigure the coming of, of Christ and, and the resurrection. And Genesis 22 is one of these stories. We know that from the New Testament. The author of Hebrews says that, that the events that happened on Mount Moriah were a parable, is the way most of our translations put it. A type, something that happened in history that foreshadows something that will, that will happen later on. And so we need to read it with, with that in mind. And when the story opens, things were going very well for Abraham. He was about 120 years of age, and he was enjoying what the Old Testament would call good old days. God had promised that Abraham would have a great name. And it had happened. He had a good name with the inhabitants of Canaan. Matthew or, uh, chapter 21 makes that, that very clear. 
God had promised to give a land to Abraham. And Abraham did possess the land. He, would move through, he could move throughout the land of Canaan at, at will. God had promised to bless Abraham, to spiritually enrich him, and to use him to, to enrich others. And that was certainly true. Wherever, wherever Abraham went, he enriched the lives of, of others. And God had promised that he would have a son. That was the miracle child, Isaac, who was born when Abraham was impotent. He was 100 years of age. And when Sarah had already gone through the menopause, it was impossible for her to have a child. But this child was miraculously conceived, Isaac. And uh, he was Abraham's prize and pride and joy. They hunted together and they fished together and they worked together. But more importantly... This child represented the link between Abraham and the Savior who was to come. In the very beginning, God had promised Adam and Eve that Eve would have a, have a child. Who would have a child? Who would have a child? Who someday would come and crush the head of the serpent. He would inflict a mortal wound on the head of the serpent. He would kill it. But in so doing, uh, he would inflict pain upon himself. And Abraham... It was promised to Abraham that he was in that line. One of his descendants would be the Savior who would come. So that made Isaac something special. He was more than a son. He was part of this historic line through which God planned to bring salvation to the world. So things were going very well for Abraham. He had a name. He had property. He was immensely wealthy. He was a blessing wherever he went. He had the son Isaac that he longed for. He was enjoying good old days. But sometime later, we're told in chapter 22, God tested Abraham. At the end of his life, when he, when he should have been enjoying the, the results of his labor, he went through the hardest test of all. God tested him to reveal the stuff of which Abraham was made, or better, to reveal the stuff he had made out of Abraham. God called an old uh, tough-talking, moon-worshipping, Chaldean caravaneer, and, and made a man out of him, made a real man out of him. And now God wanted to show the world, and he wanted to show angels, the sort of man that, that God had made out of Abraham, so he tested him. God does not tempt us to sin, but he may test us to reveal the, the, sort, of, the sort of stuff that we're made of. And that's what happened to Abraham. God tested him and, and said to him, Abram. Abram replied, here am I. Hanani in Hebrew. That, that's, that's the way a servant responded to a master, which is an indication of, of Abram's heart at this point. He was a man who was submitted to, to God's will. Here I am, he replied. And then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. Note, one of the mountains that I will tell you about. Now, you have to remember that Abraham was pre-law. He didn't have the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus and the book of Jeremiah. He didn't know that human sacrifice was later to be prohibited. He lived in a, in a culture that regularly practiced human sacrifice. One of the really poignant results of excavations in, 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 the, in the Near East are these little jar burials. They find little tiny jars with little bitty bones in them that they know are the remnants of, of child sacrifice. It was a practice that, that, that was, it, it, 
it was all around. And Abraham must have thought, well, it's come to this. I, 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 I sort of thought that sooner or later it might come to this. And you might question the morality of this thing. I, uh, it's hard not to. How could God tease Abraham that way? But he wasn't teasing him. He was testing him. And as we shall see, the sacrifice was real. Though it was a spiritual sacrifice, God did not require the physical life of Isaac. It was a spiritual sacrifice. Abraham did have to offer up his son. Early the next morning, we're told Abraham got up. He was in the habit of taking on hard tasks resolutely. First thing the next morning, he got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. I don't know if he told Sarah. We're not told. He may not have told her to spare. But this was in any case a matter between, between God and Abraham. So he, he got the materials together for the sacrifice. He got his son and two servants, and they began to make their way along the ancient caravan route that goes right along the top of the ridge that runs north-south through the land of, of Israel to the ancient cities of Hebron. There was a city there then, and then on to, to what today is called Bethlehem. There was a Canaanite city there at that time. And finally, he made his way down to Moriah, which is Jerusalem today. There was a little Canaanite town there at that time. It was called Salem. And the king of that city-state was named Melchizedek. We know about him from Matthew 14. It was a very old town. He, he bypassed the city of, of Salem and made his way up Mount Moriah, which is the mountain just to the north of the old city of David. Salem was David's original city. Moriah is, is the hill just to the north of, of, of David's city. A little hill, about 2,400 feet high. That was the place where, where David bought a threshing floor from Aravna, the Canaanite. Later, when David came and conquered that city, and, and uh, he wanted to build an altar to the Lord, he purchased a piece of land on top of Mount Moriah. It had been a threshing floor because they put their threshing floors there because the wind would blow the chaff away. They, they would look for the highest point in a region. He bought that piece of land for the altar. And that was there, the place where Solomon later built his altar and where the temple was located. The brazen altar of the temple was right on top of that rock. And that later was where Herod expanded, embellished the temple. We've been talking about in Nehemiah, the one that was built by the returning exiles from Babylon. And that was the location of, of the altar of sacrifice, right on the top of Moriah. Today, if you go there, there's a, there's a Muslim holy site, the Dome of the Rock over the top of Moriah, but you can go inside, you can see the rock where, where Abraham carried out his intended sacrifice of, of Isaac. You can't see it today, but Abraham could see it from a distance. On the third day, it was about 50 miles from Beersheba, where Abraham lived, to Moriah. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Interesting. We will go worship, and we will come back. And I raised the question, was Abraham going to renege? No. 
Now, he was determined to offer Isaac. But Hebrews tells us that Abraham was such a great man of faith that he believed that that God could even raise Isaac from the dead. God had said, in Isaac your seed shall be named. Abraham knew that Isaac was the link between him and the man who was to come. And he believed that God would spare that boy, that he would bring him back from the dead if necessary. So Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he placed it on his son Isaac. Isaac was about 20 years of age. Abraham was about 120. And uh, Isaac was much stronger. And so the, the, the wood for the burnt offering was placed on his son. And Abraham himself carried the fire, the coals, or the tools for fire making, and the knife. And the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father... Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? That's a good question. That's the great question. Where is the lamb that will atone for sin? Someone had to pay the price for our sin. Where is that someone? When will he come? Who will pay the price necessitated by by our sin? Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb. It's up to God. He'll provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now the action slows down. This is great uh, storytelling. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there. And arranged the wood on it. He gathered a few rough stones. He built a crude altar. And he arranged the wood on top of the, uh, of the altar. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Isaac was much younger, much stronger. He could have overpowered the old man. But he meekly submitted to the sacrifice. Abram bound him as they always bound the sacrifice. Placed him on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter. Literally is the word that's translated slay in most of our translations. He took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. That altar was located on the place where David later purchased the threshing floor and built his altar. That altar was located on the place where Solomon placed the brazen altar in the temple. That was the place where the altar was located in the temple to which Jesus came, right there on the top of of Mount Moriah. That was the place of sacrifice. And Isaac was willing to submit. And Abraham was determined. One of the Dutch masters has portrayed this scene in a very vivid way. Some of you may have seen the picture. Abraham is standing over the altar. Isaac is bound and, and uh, laid. His, his body is laid across the, the wood. And uh, Abraham has the knife in his, in his hand. And out of the, out of the, the sky, a hand, the hand of the angel is reaching and, and grasping his, his wrist. And the thing that's so compelling about the, about the painting is that the muscles in Abraham's ha- hands and arms and the, the blood vessels in his arm are, 
are extended. And it's obvious that he's straining against the hand of the angel. He was determined to plunge that, that knife into his son's chest. And the angel restrained him. Those are the greatest words that a father could hear. Greatest word that Abraham could hear. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son. Your only son. One interesting thing about this verse is that the, the grammar of it is peculiar. There are old case endings, old noun case endings that don't belong in Hebrew. and They weren't used any longer in Hebrew at the time the Bible was written. I think this was an exact quote. It was so burned into Abraham's memory that he repeated it to his descendants and they repeated it to their descendants and it came down to us in the Bible in the original form in which, in which it was given. Abraham couldn't forget this restraint because it meant that there was another way. That was the good news. There was another way. Isaac didn't have to die. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram male sheep caught by its horns he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son so Abraham called that place the Lord will provide and to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided there are two things I want you to observe about those those two verses the first is this this is the first occurrence in the Old Testament of, an, of the idea of substitutionary atonement the ram was sacrificed as a burnt offering instead of Isaac. There have been burnt offerings before, but no mention of the idea of substitution. Someone taking the place of another. This is the first occurrence. And, and as you know from reading on through the Old Testament, this idea of, of a lamb taking the place of another is, is, was embedded in Israel's worship. Later when the temple was, was built, a, a, a man would bring a lamb or a goat for his family and he would, he would, his, he would lay his hands on the head of, of the lamb, actually lean on that lamb, transfer his weight to the lamb and confess his sins. And then he would kill the animal himself and the priest would take the, the lamb or the goat and it would be offered up for him, in place of him. This lamb took his place, died for his sin. Or on the Day of Atonement, there would be two goats. And uh, the, the priest would lay his head, uh, his hands on the head of one of the goats and, and confess his sins on that goat's head. And that, that animal would be sacrificed. The other goat would be taken outside of Jerusalem and turned loose and sent off into the, into the wilderness and lost. They call that lamb Azazel, which in Hebrew means lost. I... I uh, we stopped at that the place where they used to release the goat when we were in Israel. And, and I commented on this practice. And the guide said, yes, even today in modern Hebrew, we say to someone, go to Azazel. We mean uh, get lost. Although he meant something a little stronger. <clears throat> That's the idea. Someone someday is going to come and take our place. And he will die for our sins and he will take away our guilt and lose it. And, and, and there were thousands of lambs that were sacrificed from that point on, all of which prefigured the coming of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The second thing I want you to notice about this passage is, is the name itself. Abraham called that place, 
The Lord will provide. Yahweh Yera in Hebrew. The Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, the author comments, looking back to this event, to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Now, some of the more radical critics of the Old Testament say, well, this is, this is, a, a, this is an ideological tale. This is a story of origins. This is like the story of Uncle Remus, how the pig got a curly tail. Or uh, this is a story about, uh, well, the sort of thing that we do with the city of Nampa. Nampa, I understand, was named for some huge Indian that used to live back in the, in the Hawaii's. And the word Nampa means Bigfoot, and that's simply the origin of that name. Or there used to be a town in California by the name of Kolinga, beautiful-sounding name. But it came from, uh, from uh, a coaling station. It was coaling station A at one point when the trains ran through there, and they put coaling A on the... Uh, on the water tower, and so the town became Koalinga. That's an etiology. That's a story of origins. That's all this is. But no, no, no. It's more than that. This is not simply a story of origins. This is a prediction. This is a promise. It's an explanation of why the hill Moriah was called Moriah. The word Moriah comes from three elements. The first is the M prefix to Moriah, which means place of. The root of the verb that's in the middle of, of the word Moriah means to see. It's the word that's translated elsewhere through the chapter is to provide. The Hebrews had, had the same idiom that we have when we say, I'll see to something. I'll see that it gets done. I'll provide for you. They use this verb that way. And, and remember, God had said, the Lord himself will provide a sacrifice he used that verb there. And then the author says, looking back, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. That's the verb. And then the third element in the name Moriah is the little short form of God's name, Yah, which represents Yahweh. So the word Moriah, the name of the place, is the place where the Lord will provide. And it's a promise that someday on this mountain, the Lord will provide for our salvation. He'll take away our sin. About 2,000 years after that, another son went up Mount Moriah. He, too, carried the wood on his back. He, too, submitted meekly to the will of the Father. He didn't want to die. No one wants to die. But he said in the Garden of Gethsemane, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He too was an only son. He was the son whom the father loved at his baptism. He said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I think that, that John, when he wrote John 3.16, was thinking of Genesis 22. When he wrote, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And this son went up Moriah, making his way through the streets of Jerusalem up to the top of Calvary. If you go to Jerusalem today, they will show you two sites that are likely to be the place where Jesus was crucified. Either Gordon's uh, Calvary or the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. In both cases, they are on a spur of Mount Moriah. They are part of this mountain. So it happened. It actually happened. The Lord did provide on this mountain. 
John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All the lambs and goats that, whose blood had been shed, shed in preceding centuries simply prefigured the coming of, of the Son, God's only Son, who went up Mount Moriah with a wood on his back and purchased our salvation. He died instead of us. That's why Mark puts it in his gospel. He did not come to be served. He did not come to be substituted for. He came to be the substitute. He did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom, literally instead of many. Here's this idea of a substitutionary atonement. The promise was made in Genesis 22 to Abraham that someday on this mountain, salvation will be provided. And this idea that on this little hill, a nondescript little hill, really not much to it, just a barren little rock, someday God would provide salvation for the human race. And you find this notion all the way through the Old Testament that someday on this mountain, God will save. Let me, let me have you turn to one of any number of texts that you could turn to. Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, and it's clear from the context that the mountain is Mount Zion, Mount Moriah. A number of names used for the mountain. But it's the same mountain. On this mountain. On Moriah. The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. Now, this idea of a banquet is a metaphor in the Old Testament for fellowship, for enjoyment of God himself, worship of him, rich spiritual uh, fellowship with God. That's why Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and I'll feast with him. It's an oriental figure for fellowship on this mountain. The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, Mount Moriah, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people. What shroud? The fear of death. The dread at the imminency of, of our death. The shroud that enfolds all peoples. The sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death Forever. In the ancient Near East, the god of death, Mot, was said to swallow you up. When you died, you were swallowed up by divine Mot. Here, Isaiah, building on that idea, says, no, 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 death will not swallow you up. God someday will swallow up death. And it's this passage that Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 15. Will you turn there, please? Just one final passage. Genesis 22 is, is looking forward, looking down through time. The promise is there that someday on this mountain, God will provide. Isaiah 25 moves the promise on. On this mountain, God will provide a rich feast for you. He will do death. He will put death to death. He'll swallow up death forever. Then Paul, from his side of the resurrection, looking back to the coming of Christ, writes... Verse 53, the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. 
1553. And the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. What saying? The saying in Isaiah 25. That someday on this mountain, provision will be made. He will swallow up death forever. Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And then he, he asked two rhetorical questions. Again, quotations from the Old Testament. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. In other words, uh, sin is like a fatal snake bite. It's as though we're, we're bitten at birth and we begin to die. The sting, the fatal sting of death is sin. See, death is not natural. It's not the natural byproduct of, of biological life. It's unnatural. It's an intruder. It's in the world because of sin. As Paul puts it in, in Romans 5, through one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men because all of sin. You want to know if all people sin? Yes. How do you know? Because they all die. Death is the byproduct of sin. But the sting of sin has been taken away. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. In other words, law has no power to save. All, all law can do is put you further under the pile. It just points out more sin and condemns you for it. Moses' law, or any law you can concoct for yourself, law can't save you. All they can do is further condemn you. Law gives power to sin. But, thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus stood at the grave of Lazarus, and we're told that He snorted in anger. It's a word that's used for a snorting of horses. He was angry. He was ticked. Look at what death did to my friend. Now he said, I'm going to do something about it. And so he took death on, head on. Come on, death, he said. Put up your dukes. Show me what you can do. Give me your best shot. And he did death to death by his death. So that we don't really have to die. We die physically, but death simply means we step into another realm of relationship with God. He took away the fear of death. You see? So we can say, along with Paul, death, where is your victory? What's the big deal? Why are we afraid of death? Where, where is your sting, O oh death? It's been taken out. How? On the mountain of the Lord. The Lord himself provided for us. Our Lord Jesus came and he died the death that we should have died. He died for our sin. And he removed the sting of death. And then he rose again as the evidence that God accepted the work that he had done. And now we are imparted the life that Jesus Christ himself has. He rose. He saw the light of life, as Isaiah 53 puts it. And that was God's way of saying, so will you. Do you know how Abraham entered into a covenant relationship with God? We didn't do any works. He didn't try to do better. He just believed what God had told him. Someday on this mountain, provision will be made. God will bring salvation to the world. He'll deal with sin and death. He believed it. And Abraham was reckoned righteous, according to the New Testament. God accepted him. God said, he's okay. It's all right. It's one of mine. And that's how we enter in 
as well. It's not a matter of going to church and getting busy and being on committees and doing things to try to impress God. All He wants is for you to believe what Abraham believed, that on that mountain provision was made for your sin. By death, Jesus conquered death, your death. And now He gives you life. Let's pray. This all may be news to you. Perhaps your mind, uh, you've been confused in the past with appeals to to harder work and more activity and and good deeds. And, And you've never realized that God himself has made provision for you. He did it all. And he himself bore that wood up Mount Moriah and made provision for you. Like Abraham, all you have to do is believe. Lean the whole weight of your life on the Lamb of God and confess your sin. And He'll take it away. And the victory that He gives is a victory that endures forever. It means eternal fellowship with God. Physical death simply means enjoying more of God. As Paul puts it, to die is far better. So he's taking the sting and the fear and the dread out of death. Perhaps you've been tyrannized by that fear all of your life. You can be set free this morning if you accept the provision that God made for you on that mountain. 1,900 years ago when when our Lord Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Would you accept that this morning? Would you accept him as your Savior? Simply say to him, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I want you to be my Savior and my Lord. Will you do that? Right where you're sitting. Lord, that is truly good news. That you've made provision for us. I do not have to provide for myself. You've done it all. I thank you for that. I want to enter into it, Lord, fully. As all of us do. Help us, Lord, today as we celebrate your, your your rising from the dead. To remember that we, too, have a risen quality of life. We have an eternal destiny. Help us, Lord, to live that life as you've called us to live it. Thank you for all that you've provided for us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.